Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Village podcast, Parenting Beyond Discipline, the place to learn about all things parenting and get your questions answered. I'm your host, Erin Royer. So obviously, I live to come back and continue on with my work after my race. I will be honest in saying that I felt pretty run down, but I'm pretty much back to normal and I'll be fully back to normal in a few days. And I did finish the race. I'll share some short details at the end for those who are curious to hear about it. But first, our questions this week. First from Ray, who has a whole slew of questions related to a high energy preschooler whose behavior can also turn aggressive. After Ray, I have a question about another parenting struggle with bedtimes with a toddler. So first, Ray wrote, Dear Erin, thank you so much for your work supporting parents. I've been working my way through all of your podcasts and your online classes. They have been very helpful and I still have a lot to go. I have a four and a half year old, a two year old, and a seven month old, so we're in the thick of it. You definitely are in the thick of it, Ray. My question is with my four and a half year old, he seems to have a lot of aggression issues. He gets into what I call his wild side. It's hard to describe, but it just seems like he has so much energy that he doesn't know what to do with. And he'll run around the house, sometimes throwing toys, pulling on things, doing things he knows he's not supposed to do. When he does this, I offer him a choice. He can stop himself and calm himself down or I'll help him calm down by holding him. I've tried to notice when he does it. Sometimes it's when I set a boundary, and sometimes it seems like it's impulse control related. Sometimes it's attention seeking, and sometimes he gets so into his play that I think he gets caught up in it. He likes to play superhero, and even though we strictly limit media and what he watches, he's somehow learned that superheroes fight bad guys. We also have a rule of no play fighting, but he does this anyway until I stop him. He started preschool this year, and he actually really loves it. He does well. The structure is good for him. The teachers indicate that there are no behavior issues at school. Since he started, though, he's been having more meltdowns at home, and this has sometimes turned into aggression towards me. If I set a boundary, even over something small, he occasionally will come at me hitting, kicking, and biting. He sometimes tries to enlist his younger brother, saying, get her. When he does this, I hold him so that he can't hurt me and tell him in a quiet, calm voice that I'll let him go when he calms down. He usually calms down within a few minutes, and then we can have a conversation about the behavior. Since listening to your podcast, I've been tightening up my boundaries and consistency. I was doing fairly well on that, but there were some holes in it. I think in a previous podcast, you suggested using a consequence for aggressive behavior, but I really struggle to find appropriate consequences for this. I've tried taking toys away as a consequence, but even if I state it clearly before the behavior and then follow through, it seems like either he doesn't care or it just comes across as me being mean. I also want to give some context that overall, he is a very sweet, smart, caring child. He's an intense kid, but he can really focus on his play and sit calmly sometimes. Often we'll follow the boundaries I set and probably 80% of the time he's a great kid, but the 10 to 20% of the time when he gets out of control, I feel like I just don't know what to do. 
I'm getting to the point where I'm realizing I may need some help. I want to take him to a therapist to see if there's any other underlying issues, something like ADHD, and also so I can vent and get more tools to help him. There are no traumas that I can think of other than the addition of younger siblings and starting preschool, but the wild behavior started before preschool. It's been really hard on our family. So my question is related to how to seek a good therapist. I'm wondering if there are certain qualifications or specialty areas or key phrases to look for or to avoid when seeking a therapist. So first, since Ray is a member, I did get back to her right away. So I answered her questions right up. So I answered her question a while ago. But so with Ray, I told her I wanted to make a quick mention about ADHD. So for anyone else out there whose child might be dealing with a lot of wild behavior and you're curious or you're not sure what to think or if you should be getting an assessment, when it comes to ADHD, a professional usually won't diagnose a child under the age of five or six. Preferably, we wait till six. Because four-year-olds and five-year-olds into five, some kids, just tend to be wild anyway. It's part of being four. So it's best to wait until a child is six or up to see if there's a recurring pattern over the years and to see if this is something they're just not outgrowing. Another indicator of a diagnosis is that it needs to be pervasive. This means that there are similar struggles at home, at school, during extracurricular activities, playdates, etc. So given that Ray's son does well at school, it sounds like he's most likely just a very active boy. I also pointed Ray to the temperament class for all the ways of working with a highly active kid to give them lots of opportunities to get their energy out as well as ways to help him learn to focus his energy in more appropriate ways. But for those who might have a highly active child and are curious, I'll share a few tips in just a moment. First, when it comes to temperament, it's really good to recognize that oftentimes when we have a child who falls high or low on one end of the spectrum for some temperamental trait, and we happen to fall somewhere on the complete opposite end of the spectrum or more closely to the opposite end of the spectrum for that trait, it can make that trait seem quite pronounced in our child. So when we consider our child's temperament, it's also really important to take a look at our own and see how we might be alike or very different from our child or children and even our spouse. I had a member who sent me this great graph of everyone in her family, herself, her husband, and her three kids, and where they all five of them fell in each of the nine temperamental traits on the spectrum. After that class, a light bulb went off for her. She understood where some of the struggles were coming from with her understanding everyone better and being able to work within the framework of understanding them and their different temperaments and helped her help her children expand and work with their temperaments. So that was a really cool thing to see from her. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but when I was a child, I was very active. So, so much so that my mom had me tested for ADHD. And I think I've shared that once before. But anyway, I did not get the diagnosis. The pediatrician just told her to cut down on my sugar. And I don't think it helped a lot. I think I still did flips over the couch for various times throughout the day. Okay, so for some tips for working with a highly active child. First, I want to explain what activity level is. This is the amount of movement or energy a child exhibits that is not related to hyperactivity. A highly active child tends to have an inability to sit or stay quiet for very long. 
Now, because they are constantly doing, trying, and seeking new physical stimulation and experiences, and therefore they tend to they tend to develop their motor skills earlier than their peers. So, because of this, they're generally seen as very capable. But also because of this seeking out of physical movement, they tend to push their boundaries of physical abilities more often than their peers. And therefore, they may also be seen as more accident prone. They may be having more accidents because they're trying more things, harder things than other kids their age are doing. So when it comes to helping a highly active child to get his or her needs for physical movement and experiences met, we want to do two things. We want to give them access and opportunity to outlets they need while also teaching them boundaries around proper ways to exhibit those needs. So such as running around outside rather than jumping on the couch. Now our oldest is very highly active. Gee, I have no idea where he gets it from. He will at times sit at the table for dinner and bang on it like a drum. It drives us crazy. And this is a nine-year-old. So I'm going to touch on this here because it's a good point to mention. And it's a question that may be on some of your minds or may come up as I share more. And that is, how can you tell the difference between a highly active child and a child with ADHD? A kid who can't sit still long enough to eat dinner at nine years old after he's had two hours of swim practice and feels the compulsion to bang on the table. Why aren't I dragging this kid in for an assessment, you might be wondering. Here's how I know. He's more than able to sit still when expected in school and focus on his schoolwork. His grades and focus at school are excellent, and he's also fully capable of focusing on his homework and projects while he's at home as well. But because he is expected and does focus so intently at school all day, he comes home extra wound up. And since it's the place where he can let loose, he certainly does. And this may be, Ray, what you were dealing with. So for guiding a highly active child, and in this case, a preschool toddler age child, have a physical activity available at all times that you consider appropriate in the given situation. Now, especially have a few for inside for when it's dark out or cold or if you don't have a secure outdoor space. So it could be a small indoor trampoline, a small indoor climber, like a small slide they can climb up and slide down. It may seem cumbersome to have a small climber inside, but if you live somewhere cold in winter or any other situation where outside isn't possible, why not? Things like hula hoops or jump ropes or other types of indoor exercise equipment that toddlers and preschoolers can use. A game like Hullabaloo is awesome. This is an active game with an electronic reader or speaker that you turn on. It tells the kids what item to find to step on. So you have these mats and you put them out on the floor and it tells the kids to find a musical instrument, to find a purple triangle, to find whatever, the spaghetti, you you name it. So they have to look around and then hop. So they have to concentrate and they get to move physically while they're doing it. So it's a great game that you can just put on and they, you don't need to have anyone else to play. They can do this by themselves because this little part of the game tells them what to do. You don't have to have an adult read cards or anything for them. So this is a great indoor activity. This way, when your child is getting rambunctious, you have an activity to send them to. What's important also for kids this age is to focus on the positive. So rather than saying, don't jump on the couch, don't run around, don't do this, stop doing that. That's always telling them what not to do. So then they're like, their brains don't know what to do. So if we tell them what to do, why don't you go slide down your slide? Why don't you go jump for five minutes inside your trampoline? I'll set the timer. Let's see how many times you can jump in the trampoline before the timer goes off. That type of thing, you're sending them somewhere to do something with a positive instruction on what to do rather than what not to do. 
Now, if it's a time where outdoor play is acceptable and available, you can also send them outdoors. You could keep lots of outdoor active toys around, games, equipment available, and allow your child to engage as often as you can. For younger kids, balance bikes, tricycles, three-wheeled scooters. As they get older, two-wheeled scooters, bikes, sporting equipment like basketball, volleyball, a soccer ball, and or football. If your child is in preschool or you're looking at preschools, make sure it's one that allows for lots of outdoor play so they're getting that out during the day while they're at school. Get out to park so your child can just play and climb and run. You can also go on walks. Walk along while your preschooler rides the tricycle or balance bike, the scooter, etc. Now, at the early ages, under seven or eight, there is no need for organized sports in general. Organized sports don't tend to offer the kind of freedom of movement that kids should still be discovering in the younger ages. But if you feel your child would benefit from learning some sports skills, in addition to giving lots of free outdoor play, and by free, I mean unstructured play, not free as in money, (laughs) This free play is so important to their physical development and discovery of what their bodies can do. They just need to be able to go and play and learn and try and see what they can do. So if it's in addition to that type of play and they're getting at least an hour of that a day and it's safe and it's age appropriate, and by that I mean there's no competition or scoring under the age of seven or eight, you can add that in, but it's not necessary at all. Now, I'm always one to advocate for swim lessons, just for safety reasons. Also, so long as caregivers don't see this as a reason to not watch their children as closely around water, but as a precaution to allow their toddler or child to get themselves to the edge if they fall in or find themselves in the water in a position they might otherwise not be comfortable in and they won't panic. So it's always good for those safety reasons. Now, the temperament class covers a lot more about tips for home and school and discipline and guidance. So if you want to know more about working with a highly active child or any other traits of temperament, see that class on the website at yourvillageonline.com under the health and development tab. But I want to get to the rest of Ray's questions as well as the next question about bedtimes. So I'm going to talk about boys and play fighting. Now, not to generalize, and as much as many of us try to keep options open for our kids to try whatever interests them, and there are some boys who like crafts and what we might typically consider more feminine activities, and there's girls who like Nerf guns and rough play, and I was actually that girl that had no interest in dolls and loved to play in the mud and climb trees and play with toy trucks. I had this evil Knievel trick motorcycle. It was awesome. I'm totally dating myself with that reference, and some of you out there might not even know who Evil Knievel is, but I loved that toy. Anyway, it is true, though, that more boys tend to gravitate towards certain toys and types of rough play than girls, and there's something about boys and play fighting and toy weapons. Now, we never did much media in our house either, but other kids have exposure, and so they bring it into their play. And our kids will just pick up on that. So if it's the superheroes, it may be somebody at school, somebody in the neighborhood who might be talking about superheroes and playing superheroes. And kids pick up that stuff really easily and quickly. And there's not much of a way to circumvent that. Now, I remember going to a seminar with some early education directors, one of who ran a very progressive school, and she talked about boys and guns. And I remember her saying that boys will find anything that looks remotely like a gun and pretend it's a gun. It could be a stick, a rolled up piece of paper, anything. And I've seen this with my boys. They'll pick it up and go pew, pew, pew. And there's really no stopping that. And we had this rule about play guns in our house. We weren't going to buy any for the kids ever. Well, our neighborhood is full of boys who all have Nerf guns. And the more we said no, the more interesting and intriguing and obsessed they became. So 
It really started to backfire and it created more of an interest rather than less. So we went ahead and bought the boys some Nerf guns. And then we just share with our kids about how real guns are dangerous and how if you find one, you need to tell an adult and not touch it. So my brother-in-law is in the FBI. And when we went to visit, he showed my kids all of his equipment and his firearms, but also gave them a great talk about guns and safety. Now with boys, the type of play, this type of play, the rough play, the gun play, the aggressive play is about power. It's a power play. It's learning about power. It's about how to test or assert power or work together as a team, etc. So if you can figure out a way to allow some play fighting where you feel it's safe but lets him explore, it will probably help alleviate some of the interest and will make it less exciting and interesting because it's not forbidden. We gave our kids um, lightsabers made from pool noodles so they could fence each other and they love those. And they've outgrown pretty much all of that stuff at this point. They hardly ever pick up their Nerf guns or the lightsabers anymore at all. Now, if you still do want to look for a therapist, recommendations are the best way to go. They obviously need to be licensed and you can check your state's website to make sure the license is still in good standing and you can see what, if any, complaints have been brought against him or her. Now, here in California, it's called the Board of Behavioral Sciences, but I'm not sure what the governing body is in other states. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. By Heart is an infant nutrition company whose mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. Using the latest in breast milk science, By Heart created a clinically proven, easy to digest infant formula that's made with organic grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. Our blend includes the most abundant protein found in breast milk, alpha-lac, as well as lactoferrin, the number one protein found in colostrum, along with broken down, partially hydrolyzed proteins. By Heart is an easy-to-digest formula. In addition to its patented protein blend, our formula includes prebiotics and an 80-20 whey-to-casein ratio like in early breast milk, which is tailor-made for a newborn's digestive system. By Heart is the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk, not skim. Curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with the code parenting for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So now on to the next question from Arun. Hi, Aaron. Our strong-willed almost three-year-old will not go to sleep on his own. We've created, or rather, I guess I have created the problem, and I'm having a very hard time getting out of it. We co-slept until he was about 14 months, or just until about the time when I stopped nursing him. He transitioned to his own bed just fine, but needed me next to him to fall asleep. So while at first this was okay, he started to pinch to get to sleep. And as he aged, those pinches hurt more and more. I eventually would doze off to sleep and not even feel them anymore. 
Lately, he started to take anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to get to sleep. Okay, with this whole method of me or my husband being next to him. He eventually starts kicking and playing before eventually dozing off. So we bought your course, watched the sleep video, and implemented the mantra method. So while in all it works, it doesn't work as you described it. He's no longer in a crib and gets up anywhere from 20 to 50 times each night or basically as soon as you put him down and runs after you when one of us leaves the room. We walk him back and repeat, it's time for bed. He starts walking back to bed, sometimes laughing and saying, no, it's not time for bed. Eventually, he gets very annoyed, starts crying, and falls asleep. I have had my niece babysit him and do this with him for his nap and his bedtime, and he never even once left the room. He just laid in bed, talked, and then sang himself to sleep, so I know he is more than capable of going to sleep on his own. Um, Please help me out here. My husband is suggesting we take all of his toys away as a consequence to not going to sleep, which makes no sense to me, and I'm sure will only confuse him as well. Plus, I don't have the patience to occupy him without toys all day after I didn't get enough sleep myself. So when I got back to Arun, I first let her know that we may need to do a consultation in order to get to the reason why this method is not working properly for her, but also gave her lots of tips in the meantime to see if she could get this turned around on her own. So I do consultations. I do private consultations with parents as well when they're really struggling with getting some things fixed on their own. So what I shared with her is, but there's a reason why it's not working. There's a reason behind this behavior. He's getting some kind of payoff or he wouldn't keep doing it. So it's not uncommon given how ingrained the pattern has become that it would take 30 to 50 times back to bed at first. This should only be two to three nights tops. And then this should start to drastically drop off once using the method. So It means using the method and staying very consistent, not losing your cool, not engaging in conversation, not looking the child in the eye, simply walking the child back to bed calmly. Now, this pattern has become so ingrained that he will do and try anything and everything. He will pull out all the stops to try and break through because now he doesn't have the power and he's trying to get the power back. So he's going to work really hard to try to get that power back. He's going to backtalk and disagree. It's not time for bed. That's why he's saying it's not time for bed. The laughing it off and then the crying. This is pulling out all the stops. He's used to this pattern and this is uncomfortable for him. This is trying to set a new pattern that he's not comfortable with. So he is pulling it all out and trying to get things back to what he's used to. So first I asked some questions of Arun. How many nights in a row has she kept with the method Did she engage in conversation or stay for a few minutes if he asked or let him get up for a drink of water? Any of those things, anything outside of saying nothing or just it's time for bed and keeping a boring, plain look, keeping the tone very even will give a payoff and encourage him to keep trying. If he gets no payoff for the behavior, he will stop, but it may take longer than expected given how long the other behavior has been the norm of him falling asleep with someone there. The reason he doesn't do it with the niece is that there's no ingrained pattern with her. And so he just did as he was told and what was expected. What's great about this is that it does let us know that he is fully capable and ready to do this and stay in his room and keep himself occupied until he falls asleep. I also shared about the toys. So if there are toys in his room, then you want to take the toys out of the room because they could be a distraction at bedtime. But taking toys away as a consequence during the day for a behavioral problem at bedtime won't help him learn better bedtime behavior. 
only setting the bedtime boundaries. It's time for bed and walking him back, letting him know what you expect for him to stay in his room until he falls asleep. Only these things and working on those bedtime boundaries and expectations will fix the bedtime behavior problem. Also, just something to keep in mind is that for young kids, when it gets to the point of having to use a consequence, it has to be immediate and short. They will make no connection and it won't mean anything for a consequence the next day that came because of something they did the night before. So if he goes to play with his trains and are not there at 10 o'clock in the morning because of something he did at 8 o'clock the night before, it's just not going to connect. And he's not going to think at 8 o'clock tonight, oh, I better be good or I'm not going to have my trains tomorrow. There's just too much time in there. It won't make any connection. So for two-year-olds, it's immediate and no longer than 20 minutes. So if he continually throws a toy after you've coached about throwing toys, so how it could break or how it could hurt someone, then you can make a consequence with the toy. If you throw the toy again, I'll have to take it away. And he throws it again after that warning. Then taking the toy away would be the consequence for throwing the toy and only for 20 minutes or so. Anything longer than that, it loses effectiveness. So when it comes to the bedtimes, it's really just setting those boundaries. It's time for bed. You need to stay in your room. You can have a pre-conference. You can say, tonight you are staying in your room. You need to fall asleep on your own. I will be walking you back to bed and telling you it's bedtime. I won't be getting you a drink of water. You know, kids like to throw in those extra questions. I need this. I need my lovey. I need a drink of water. I need to whatever. They throw it in there. They will try to throw it in there to get you back. My kids love to use the I love you just to get me to respond to them. And my response to that was in the pre-conference. I would say, I love you very much, but it is bedtime. So if you tell me after I've left your room that you love me, I'm not going to answer. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It means it's bedtime because I always tell them right before I would tuck them in, I love you. So they were getting that before, but they were doing it. One of them, especially my oldest would try to do that to get a response out of me after I had put him into bed trying to re-engage me because, you know, what parent is going to ignore and I love you? (laughs) Anything they can do, they will try it. So remember, I have over 50 classes available on demand on the website at yourvillageonline.com, including discipline, development, health topics like sleep and bedtime, healthy eating, self-esteem, have some education concerns like finding a preschool, and what I call modern parenting issues such as peaceful parenting, media, getting and staying organized as a busy family, among lots of others. Also, Your Developing Preschooler is currently in the editing phase, and I'm currently designing the class on raising kids with a growth mindset, which are the ones that were voted to become the next classes. So, oh, that's right. So it was my race, a quick summary. So the water was 56 degrees, not quite as cold as we thought it was going to be, but the longer I swam, the colder I got. And the swim took me longer than I felt that it should have. I was expecting to be in and out of that water somewhere between 35 and 40 minutes. But it's quite possible that the swim was measured too long because a friend of mine looked up the times for the pro athletes and said that their times were five minutes longer than expected. And then of course, the longer I was in there, the colder I got, the more I slowed down. By the time I got out of the water, I was not in good shape. I was certainly not fully functioning mentally. I was definitely hypothermic. Um, I pulled my, and I don't think I realized it until I pulled my wetsuit about halfway off and then that cold air like hits your body and I'm wet. And my husband, my kids are standing there right at the, 
the mesh where they can see you. And he's like, are you okay? And I just broke down in tears. And I said, I'm so cold. I'm so cold. And I got my wetsuit off. I got into the tent where you grab your bag to get onto the bike. And I couldn't stop shaking. And I grabbed the towel. I don't remember this very well, but I know I had a towel around me. So I must have gotten into my bag, got my towel around me to try to warm up. I made it through the tent and I sat down on a chair outside. Luckily, it was warm enough in the sunshine. And I just sat there and shivered for I don't know how long. I got my clothes on eventually, got on my bike and left. The rest of the race went without a hitch. The bike was nice. I did fine on the bike. Not as fast as I wanted. I'm never as fast as I want. Three hours and 20 minutes. And then got into the transition area and got onto the run. The run took me two and a half hours, which is longer than I would have liked as well, but not terrible. But it was a beautiful run and the weather was beautiful. I never got hot on the bike. I never got too hot on the run. The aid stations were great. And I got to tell you, I don't drink much soda and I don't drink regular soda when I do, which not this is any better. I drink diet soda, but they had Coke at the aid stations. And I got to tell you, Coke has never tasted so good in my entire life. I was so over those sugary like sports drinks and sports chews that ugh, Coke just, it tasted amazing. So I finished the race in seven hours and 22 minutes, an hour longer than I had expected. When I looked back at my times, my transition for my swim was 23 minutes long. So I sat there just trying to warm up, obviously for quite a while before I was able to move forward. And I remember thinking, you know, you can't get on the bike until you stop shaking. Because if you try to get on the bike right now, you're not going to be able to ride. You're going to fall over. And there was a point where I was like, I I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can go on. But I said to myself, you did not drag your family all the way out here, spend three nights in a hotel and all take the kids out of school for two days so that you can quit right now. So you can't quit right now. So I obviously I went on my way and made it happen. So that is my crazy race story. And now I'm even more committed to getting my times down and getting better at open water swimming and getting faster on the bike. And of course, the run considering I just started running about eight months ago after my double hip replacement. I can't be too disappointed in my performance. So that's enough about my race. If you have a parenting question you'd like answered, send an email to podcast at yourvillageonline.com. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money.